Well, welcome to Springfield Church of God. We are in the middle of a sermon series called The Kingdom, where we've been looking at the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and what that means for us as those who are seeking after Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And so we've been talking about how we live that out here on earth, how we pursue after the kingdom of God. And I want to start today with a quote from an author and pastor. His name's Frederick Beekner. And this is what Frederick Beekner said. He said, If we only had eyes to see and ears to hear and wits to understand, we would know that the kingdom of God in the sense of holiness, goodness, beauty is as close as breathing and is crying out to, to born both within ourselves and within the world. We would know that the kingdom of God is what we all of us hunger for above all other things, even when we don't know its name or realize that's what we're starving to death for. The kingdom of God is where our best dreams come from and our truest prayers. We glimpse it at those moments when we find ourselves being better than we are and wiser than we know. We catch sight of it when at some moment of crisis, a strength seems to come to us that is greater than our own strength. The kingdom of God is where we belong. It is home. And whether we realize it or not, I think we are all of us homesick for it. I love that visual description of of being homesick for the kingdom of God. That it's something that we long for within our being, something that we crave, and yet sometimes it feels so far off. Sometimes it feels close. We have those moments where we we experience God's kingdom within us and around us in such a powerful way that we have a glimpse of eternity, of that thing that we long for. And that's part of what we're trying to accomplish during this sermon series is figuring out how we live for the kingdom how we live in such a way that we experience God's kingdom while we are here on earth. So today we're going to be looking at another parable of Jesus that speaks to the kingdom of God and what it is as it's realized here on earth. But first, let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for the kingdom that you brought, the kingdom that we will fully realize one day when you return again, and yet that kingdom that we long for. Whether we acknowledge it or not, Lord, you have given us a desire for your kingdom in our hearts. Lord, rather than ignore it, rather than uh, make it smaller within us, Lord, may you increase that desire. May you fuel that desire for your kingdom, that, that it would lead to a deeper desire and longing for you, our Savior. We would desire to be in fellowship with you. We would desire to be in your presence to pray to you and to listen to your voice. So as we hear your text today, your word proclaimed, your voice proclaimed for your people here today, may it move and stir something within us, Jesus, that it would draw us near to you, that it would draw us closer in likeness to you, our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a famous book that perhaps you've heard of. Maybe you've seen the movie and not read the book because it's like a thousand plus pages. So I've never read the book, but it's The Count of Monte Cristo. And it's a famous story that many people know and are aware of. The main character is Edmund Dantes, and he's framed for a crime that he did not commit. He's sentenced to an island prison where he is to remain for many, many years. 
And yet eventually he ends up escaping, finds a treasure, and sets the course of his life with one focus, revenge. He sets out to right the wrong that was done to him, and his entire life becomes focused on taking on this new identity, the Count of Monte Cristo, so that he can seek revenge upon those who imprisoned him. This is one of many stories that we see both in literature and in film that center around the central theme of revenge. Usually these stories of revenge stem from an ingrained grudge or a bitterness that the main character carries within them. And while we may not amass a fortune and spend our entire life focused on the theme of revenge, we too are tempted to carry grudges within our lives and to carry bitterness within our hearts towards others who have perhaps wronged us. We are wronged by others, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not. And yet there are times where we don't let it go, where we hold on to that bitterness and we don't forgive those who have wronged us. We remain frustrated and bitter, and sometimes we even let this grow to the point of desiring revenge or ill upon those who have wronged us. The question we must evaluate is if this is how we are called to handle these feelings and emotions. Is this the biblical way to live out our faith and our lives? Does the Bible support this type of anger and bitterness and resentment and a desire for revenge? In order for us to understand what the Bible says about revenge, I believe it's best to look at when Peter raises the question to Jesus of how much he should forgive those who wrong him. How much we can relate to Peter in this moment, sometimes wondering ourselves if we must continue to forgive someone who has wronged us. When is enough enough? Or can we allow the anger to stew within our hearts instead? Let's look at what Jesus says to Peter and to his followers and what we also in turn must seek to live out. If you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, we're going to be starting in verse 21 to examine the words of Jesus. And you can follow along on the screen or there's Bibles in the pew. It'll also be up behind me, but this is Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Well, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. So our our story begins with Peter coming up and raising this question to Jesus, this question that many of us have probably wrestled with. Someone keeps wronging me. Someone keeps doing something that isn't right in my view. I've forgiven them. Maybe I've forgiven them twice. Maybe I've forgiven them three times. Do I have to continually forgive them as a follower of Christ? And so Peter wants to know from Jesus, how often do I have to forgive them? And Peter thinks that he is being generous here by suggesting as many as seven times because the norm during this period was three times. The first century rabbis taught that one ought to forgive and to forgive and to forgive three times. The number was based on the first and second chapters in the Old Testament of the prophet Amos, where he quotes God as saying that he will forgive three times the transgressions of such places and people as Damascus and Gaza and Tyre and Edom and Ammon and Moab. So the rabbi's logic was one not ought to be more forgiving than God. 
And so because of these texts, they determined three was the appropriate number of forgiveness. So in Peter's question, he's already doubled that number and added one for good measure. So I'm sure he, he kind of has his chest puffed up. Jesus, how, forgive him seven times? Is that enough? That's more than what they say we ought to do. And yet Jesus takes what Peter asked, even in his generosity, and places the aim so much higher to the people, to be people who are continually forgiving. Now, a little caveat here, and I've talked about this throughout the years, whether I've worked with youth or children or adults, that forgiveness does not always equate continual relationships with people. If someone is wronging you and mistreating you, forgiving them does not mean that you have to maintain or stay in an unhealthy relationship with someone. That's two different things, and they don't have to be the same. So you can forgive someone and no longer be friends with them. You can forgive someone and no longer continue in a relationship with them because it's not healthy. So forgiveness does not have to equate a relationship continues. That's not what Jesus is saying here. So Jesus takes what Peter says in, in the seven and says, not seven, but 77 times. Scholar Dale Bruner states that when Jesus requires this infinite forgiveness of us, he can do so because God has given infinite forgiveness to us. You see, when Jesus says 77, he's not just picking a number that at 78 we no longer have to forgive. But Jesus is placing the aim so high that what he is implying to Peter is that forgiveness must be an ongoing feature of followers of Jesus. That it must be something that we continue to embody in our lives, not to a certain number but continually, because God continually forgives us. Jesus intends to not just give Peter these instructions, though, with these simple words, but he wants to show the meaning of what he is saying to Peter and why he sets the bar so high. So to do this, Jesus tells a parable to the disciples to help them understand the grace that they are offered by Jesus Christ. Look with me at 18.23, where Jesus begins this parable. He says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payments to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now to pity for him. The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. In response to Peter's question of how much one should forgive, 
Jesus gives this parable. This parable that begins with Jesus comparing the kingdom of heaven to the king who wants to settle accounts with his servants. And in the parable, the king is a representation of God. Now, in parables, not every fact is exactly the same for that person. So just because it says something about the king does not mean that 100% that is God, but is an example on the bigger picture of the character of God here and the servants who we represent. And so in this parable, the king wants to settle the debts with his servants. And one is brought who owes him a major debt. Like the sinner, or like the servant in this story, we too owe a great debt to God. The debt that we owe is that we are sinners. We are unable to keep God's perfect law. We fall short, and thus we must pay the consequences for our sin. Paul speaks of this in Romans 6, 23 through 25, when he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You see, it's because of this sin, this debt, that in the parable, we are the servant. We are the one who is having the balance of our sin being settled with the king. We are the one who owe an extraordinary debt, one that is far greater than any of us are possible to to being able to pay off. And so when the debts are settled in the parable, the king brings forward this servant who owes him a debt of 10,000 talents. Now, one talent is the equivalent at that time period of about 20 years' wages for a laborer. I don't know how he ran up such a debt in the parable, but he has this astronomical debt. The picture that Jesus is painting here is that the debt is so large that it could never be paid back. A talent was a measure of wealth during this period, and most historians believe that during Jesus' lifetime, the entire wealth of the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire on the planet at that time, would have been somewhere between four to 5,000 talents. And yet this servant owes the king 10,000 talents. In other words, this is an enormous, unthinkable amount. Something like our national debt, perhaps, that is just hard to even fathom how great it is. In the equivalent of today's dollars, it probably would have been, most commentators suggest, around $6 billion that the servant owed the king. And so, because he can't pay it, because he has no way to pay off this enormous debt, the king orders that the servant and his family, his wife, his children, be sold to pay off the debt. Now, there's no way that what he would have gained from selling these people would have equated to the 10,000 talents. But it was a common practice during that time, if you couldn't pay your debt, that you could be sold, and at least you'd gain something back. Because you had no hopes of ever gaining the 10,000 back. But the servant in this moment does what I imagine all of us would do, falls to his knees pleading with the king, pleading, just give me more time. I'll find some way to pay. And the king has pity on him. The king doesn't move forward with his plan to have him uh, sold and his family, but he has pity on him as the servant is in this position of surrender and submission, asking for time, the king goes one step further and is gracious toward him. 
Not only does he not sell the servant and his family, but he wipes the entire debt clean. The entire debt is forgiven. I imagine the weight that that servant probably felt in that moment. Because we know what debt does. We know that the borrower is a slave to the lender and the weight that debt can have upon us. We live in a culture that has so much debt and it's stressful, it's anxiety producing, it sometimes feels like you can't get out from under it. And to have it just wiped clean and forgiven, this servant must have been overjoyed at his good fortune. And yet upon leaving, upon going out from the king's presence, we see that he comes across a fellow servant, one who owes him some money. And this servant owes him a hundred denarii. I believe it says there, yeah, in verse 28, a hundred denarii. A hundred denarii would have been, a denarii was the equivalent of about 20 weeks uh, labor for a common labor, a hundred denarii was. So 20 weeks labor, roughly about $12,000 in today's amount. So remember, we're talking about $6 billion he's just had forgiven, and someone owes him roughly $12,000 in today's money. And he shows no kindness. But rather, he begins to choke this fellow servant, demanding his money. And Jesus in the parable aligns these two in very similar ways in their response to the one who is seeking to collect their debts. This servant falls on his knees as well, pleading for patience, using almost the exact same words. Jesus is showing the similarities between the two servants. Both of these servants are indebted to someone else. Both of them cannot pay their debt. Both of them plead for patience and time to pay, even though the reality is they will be unable to pay off their debt. But the difference comes in the response of the one who holds the power. The king who held the power over the first servant chose to be gracious and forgave it. But in this instance, the servant who holds the power over his fellow servant does not show the same grace in this moment. In fact, he has him thrown into prison until the debt is paid. We see there in verse 30. And what happens here? is that there are people who are noticing what is happening. There are people who are gathered around who have witnessed this encounter. I'm sure have heard about the great debt that was forgiven and now have witnessed this servant choking this man, demanding his debt be given, and then placing him in prison when he cannot pay. The way in which the forgiven servant acts causes them to be greatly distressed to the point of being moved to go and to tell the king what has occurred, to tell the king of the injustice that they have just witnessed. It serves as an important reminder to us that people are watching. People are watching us even when we don't think that they are. And I'm not just talking about our kids or grandkids who are paying attention to how we live our lives and what we do, but people in our community are noticing how we live our lives. And when we profess to be followers of Christ, the the negative impact we can have when we don't follow Jesus with our lives, when we don't embody his words in our actions, has a profound effect and is why so many people who don't follow Jesus, all they can see is the hypocrisy of the church. And yes, we are broken, fallen, sinful people who make mistakes. But far too often, we are not in line with Jesus' will. 
Far too often we are seeking our own desires and our own will above Christ. And others are taking notice. And so when I read about the witness of others here in this text, it reminds me to be aware that others are watching how we are living, how, watching how we are representing Christ, and if our lives reflect his character, and if our lives reflect the grace that we have received. These are questions for all of us to evaluate. Well, the king responds in verse 32. It says, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? The master brings the servant before him, but this time he is met with righteous anger from the king. The king refers to him as a wicked servant this time. He reminds him of how he forgave his entire debt and questions why the same mercy was not shown to his fellow servant. And the result of his actions is that the king places him in jail until he can pay his debts. Jesus uses this parable to show us that there are consequences to how we live our lives and how we treat those around us. The servant's lack of mercy towards others leads to his imprisonment, a representation for us in this parable of hell for those who do not live out the forgiveness that we have been given. Colossians 3, 12 through 13 tells us, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. We see this theme time and time again in Scripture that we are forgiven people. So Peter's question of how much should I forgive, well, Jesus' answer is you've been forgiven such a great debt that you should always be forgiving those who wrong you. You should always be showing the grace you have received from Christ to those who are in your life. The servant had experienced the amazing forgiveness of the king and should have thus been willing to show a similar forgiveness to those who are indebted to him. Well, this text ends in verse 35 with a warning as Jesus transitions out of the parable and provides a warning to Peter and the disciples. He says in verse 35, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. These closing words in this section of Scripture from this parable bring it home for each one of us brings it to the reality of the importance of what's being talked about here in this text. Jesus doesn't allow Peter to get off with just capping forgiveness at his gracious seven that he thought he was proclaiming, but shows that forgiveness is to be an ongoing aspect of a life of those who have been forgiven. And the weight of this is seen in Jesus' words here at the end. They show the seriousness of the issue of forgiveness, both in terms of our lives position toward the king as well as our interactions toward one another. The warning that Jesus gives Peter in the parable this morning has great application in our personal lives too. Let's look at three ways that this parable speaks to how we are to live our days pursuing Jesus Christ. The first is that we must start by seeking forgiveness. 
As the king settles accounts, the servant comes and he owes this great debt. But he's not just passive about it. He pleads and seeks mercy from the king. And so we too must begin by settling our accounts with our king, Jesus Christ. We are sinners. Each one of us, myself included, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we must repent. We must repent and seek forgiveness for our sins. This is the first thing that stood out to me in this parable is the willingness of the king to extend grace to this indebted servant. In this parable, I see Jesus providing with us or for us an invitation to come to the king and to ask for mercy for our sins, for our debts. We must begin by seeking that forgiveness from Jesus for our sin. 1 John 1, 5 through 10 gives us the importance of this fact. It says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive, our, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What an amazing promise to cling to. I've clung to it throughout the years as I've had those moments coming before the Lord, pleading for forgiveness, asking for the Lord to forgive my sins, and then reading this promise, knowing that as I confess my sins to the Lord, that he is faithful and just to forgive them. And not just to forgive my sins, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, the Lord calls us to be holy as he is holy, and it's not something that we can attain by our own accord. By our own merit, we cannot make ourselves holy, but it's in confession and repentance of our sin and allowing Jesus dwelling within us to purify us, to cleanse us of the unrighteousness. So go to the Lord, confess your sins, and experience the sweet forgiveness that the Savior has for you as he cleanses you from all unrighteousness. The second thing that we can learn from this parable is to be those who practice forgiveness. Who hasn't been hurt by actions of others or words of another? Perhaps a parent constantly criticized you growing up or a colleague sabotaged a project or you had a partner who had an affair. Or maybe you've had a traumatic experience, such as being physically or emotionally abused by someone close to you. These wounds can leave us with lasting feelings of anger and bitterness and even vengeance. But if you don't practice forgiveness, you might be the one who pays most dearly. By embracing forgiveness, you can also embrace peace, hope, gratitude, and joy. Consider how forgiveness can lead you down the path of physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being. Who do you think wrote those words I just said? They come from the Mayo Clinic. 
You would think they would come from Christianity Today or, or a Christian author or a pastor or someone who's talking about Christianity, and yet they come from the Mayo Clinic, talking about forgiveness, talking about how our anger and bitterness, if we hold on to it, what it does to us. You see, these facts of our faith are known even outside of our faith, that holding on to bitterness and resentment does not do good things in our life. I recently read a story that perhaps you've heard or read or seen the movie. It was a phenomenal story. I highly recommend it. It was the book Unbroken, which is the story of Louis Zamperini, who is a World War II survivor. And I'd heard it was a great movie, and I'd heard it was a great story, and it had been on my list for a while. So I, I finally downloaded the audiobook and listened to it, which I consider reading a book. So I, I count it as having read the book. But Louis uh, ends up being captured in World War II and ends up in a Japanese prison camp, and multiple of them, and is essentially starved, beaten, humiliated, and tortured throughout his time. And this was after floating on a raft for like 42 days in the South Pacific, being shot at from an airplane and swimming with sharks, having to beat off sharks with his fist. And eventually he's captured and ends up in these prison camps where he wastes away, losing most of his body fat, dwindling down to like 90 pounds as an adult male, and being beaten and ridiculed, especially by one prison guard called the Bird, is what they nicknamed him. And this prison guard went out of his way to make Louis's life horrible. He tried to beat him into submission and to essentially kill him throughout his time there. And as Louis gets out of the prison camp, and regains his strength, his life is consumed with one thing. He will kill the bird. He doesn't tell his wife this, but his meaning in life, his purpose in life is to get back to Japan, to find that guard, and to kill him, to repay him for all the harm that he gave to Louis. And so Louis's life starts to spiral downhill as he starts to embrace alcoholism and anger and resentment and this path of vengeance. And it's all-consuming. It's ruining everything in his life. Until his wife drags him to a Billy Graham crusade and he hears the gospel, the gospel proclaimed. And he comes to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And after he had been rescued from the prison camps, every night he had had nightmares of the bird in his dreams beating him, abusing him, and he never slept well. And as he came to know Jesus, those stopped that very night, never to return again. And he started to learn what it meant to forgive. And there's one scene in the book where he ends up back in Japan in a room with the prison guards who are now serving as prisoners themselves. And Louis goes around to each one of the guards, looks them in the eye, and tells them that he forgives them. These are men who treated them just horribly. Things I couldn't even repeat here on a Sunday morning in church, what they did to him. And yet he forgives them. He forgives them because he knows that he has been forgiven so much. He must in turn practice forgiveness in his own life. And you may wonder, well, what if I'm struggling? What if I know this in my mind I know I'm supposed to forgive. I've heard it before. I've read it in Scripture. I've heard it preached on, but how do I do it? I just can't get over that hump. And I'm not really vengeful. I'm not seeking ill for people, but I just can't 
bring myself to forgive. I would say begin with prayer. Pray and ask the Lord to help you forgive and start that journey. That's the first step because in praying for the Lord to help you forgive others, you're starting to loosen that grasp, that bitterness, that anger, that resentment. You're right that you feel that you have to feel that way. When you ask the Lord, please help me move towards forgiveness, you're just starting to slowly release that grasp on that anger that you believe is justified. Ask someone else to pray for you as well. Find someone close to you who could join you in that journey, who could pray for you as you seek the Lord in this. Seek Scripture. Do a study on the Word and what it says about forgiveness in Scripture and and read about stories of forgiveness in Scripture and see how God uses it. And seek counseling if you need to. It's important enough of a thing that if you are having a hard time moving forward, seek counseling. Spend some time and intentionality moving towards forgiveness. C.S. Lewis, in speaking about forgiveness in his book, The Weight of Glory, says that to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And the last thing that I believe that this parable and Jesus' teaching lead us to is to be a witness to others. I read a story this week that for many years in Monterey, a California coast town, it was a pelican's paradise. As the fishermen cleaned their fish, they would, they would fling the offal to the pelicans, the innards of what they had cleaned, and the birds grew fat, lazy, and contented. But eventually, however, the offal was utilized and there was no longer snacks for the pelicans. And when the change came, the pelicans made no effort to fish for themselves. They waded around and they grew gaunt and thin and many of them starved to death. They had forgotten how to fish for themselves. The problem was solved by importing new pelicans from the south, birds accustomed to foraging for themselves, and they were placed among their starving cousins And the newcomers immediately started catching fish. And before long, the hungry pelicans followed suit and the famine was ended. You see, we have the ability to be a witness to those around us, to influence those around us through our actions and our words and how we live our lives. People will take notice of your faith when you live in the way that Jesus calls us to live. And we want to be those men and women who are pointing people to Jesus Christ, who teach those around us what it looks like to live out the word of God, to live out our faith by trusting in our Savior. We want people to notice, not for the wrong reasons like in the parable, but because we shine bright for Christ in our daily walk. We want to be those who people say, I knew something was different about you. You lived your life in a way that didn't make sense, that was countercultural, that that wasn't always seeking after comfort and self-satisfaction, but sought after the way of Jesus. In closing, I would implore you that the answer to the question of will you forgive always has to be yes if you are a Christian. That question that Peter raises to Jesus, how many times must I forgive my brother when they continue to sin against me? Seven times? The answer truly has to be continually because we are forgiven so much. There's no other way for us as followers of Jesus than the way of forgiveness. 
And it's not because we are so amazing. It's not because we have the ability in of ourselves. It's because the forgiveness that we have received from our Heavenly Father leaves us no choice but to offer it to others because we have been forgiven so much. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you first and foremost for your forgiveness. I'm so humbled, Lord, that you would forgive us. Lord, for all the times that we make mistakes, for all the times that we think that we know best, for all the times that we intentionally turn from your way and seek our own way, and yet, Lord, you still forgive us. That's so humbling. It shows your heart of grace towards us, the kindness that you have for each one of us. Lord, help us to cherish that. Help that to change us from the inward out, that we will be known as a people who forgive. We will be known as a people who show your love to all of those around us in such a powerful way that it would bring you glory. Lord, let us start here in our midst, here in this church, in how we treat one another, how we live out our days journeying with one another as a community of believers. Lord, draw us tighter with each other, knit together a unified body of believers here, pursuing after you above all else, pursuing after you above our comfort, above our own desires. Lord, may it all be about you. And Lord, may you use that to show others the goodness of who you are, that we would see it spill out from these doors into our community and that lives would be changed that we would see people come to know you as their Lord and Savior, and we would see an increase in baptisms, an increase in hope, an increase in light shining in dark places here in our city. Lord, may it start with us as we humble ourselves before you and repent and seek to live out the forgiveness that you show us. Only by your power and strength within us, We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.